Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 21, our first installment on respiratory emergencies, we have with us Dr. Anil Chopra and Dr. John Foote. Dr. Anil Chopra is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto and an associate professor in the Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. He's the head and medical director of emergency medicine services at the UHN hospitals. Dr. John Foote is an emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's the program director for the CCFP-EM Emergency Medicine Fellowship Program at the University of Toronto. Pneumonia, COPD, PE. These are diagnoses we contemplate, work up, and treat every week in the ED. While the basics in managing these diseases are relatively straightforward, there's nuances to learn that can improve our diagnostic accuracy, minimize the effects of needless imaging and treatment, improve outcomes, and make us feel better about the jobs we do in the emergency department. Often there's a lot of overlap in the clinical presentation of these diagnoses, and it's sometimes tough to sort them out. Then there's the workup. There's still disagreement about when to work up patients with PE and how best to work them up, for example. There's even controversy as to which patients with PE should be thrombolized. And then there's the particularly tricky patients who present with shortness of breath, like pregnant patients, for example. Today, backed by popular demand, we have with us the triumphant return of Dr. Anil Chopra, and with him, the blinding brilliance of Dr. John Foote, our CCFPEM Residency Program Director at U of T. They'll help us sort out these nuances of diagnosis, workup, and treatment of the oh-so-common respiratory emergencies that we encounter in our daily clinical practice. So, welcome Dr. Chopra. Thank you. And welcome Dr. Foote. Thank you. All right, let's jump right into our first case. Case one is that of a 67-year-old man with a history of COPD and hypertension who presents to your ED at 9 p.m. with the chief complaint of shortness of breath since that morning. The nurse immediately recognizes him as a frequent flyer. He admits to a recent increase in cough without sputum and vague chest pain that also started that day with no radiation, no diaphoresis, and no nausea or vomiting. He's been using his beta agonist and steroid inhalers as prescribed and takes hydrochlorothiazide for his hypertension. His triage vitals show a blood pressure of 150 on 90, heart rate of 110, respiratory rate of 20, O2 side of 91% on room air, and a temp of 37.9. His chest exam reveals diffuse expiratory wheezes and distant heart sounds. His JVP is not visible and there's no pedal edema. So let's start off with a a general approach to dyspnea. Dr. Foote, what is your approach to the patient who presents the emergency department with shortness of breath? Thank you, Dr. Hellman. I prefer to use a a system-wide approach in assessment of acute dyspnea. Obviously, respiratory causes um, jump to first in mind the commonly overlooked causes of acute dyspnea that I often have to remind residents about are the patient who's got some metabolic acidosis who is having essentially a mild sort of Kussmaul type breathing where they may not be actually having respiratory distress but they have tachypnea and shortness of breath because of a, a metabolic acidosis and that is a commonly missed cause of acute dyspnea. Anemia is another cause of, of acute dyspnea and shortness of breath the rate of change of the anemia and the development of it will, will actually influence the symptomatology. But once you get below a hemoglobin of 80, 
you should be usually getting shortness of breath with exertion at least. Another obvious cause would be cardiac causes for acute dyspnea. The com another commonly missed cardiac cause of acute dyspnea is pericardial effusion or tampon and with a tamponade. Often there are not the classic physical signs that you may read about of the elevated JVP and the cusmal respirations and sometimes it's a, it's a surprising the number of times where I since the use of ED ultrasound that I have routinely been now checking for pericardial effusion on my assessment of acute dyspneic patients and I'm surprised to see how many times um, there is a significant pericardial effusion. Of course that doesn't tell you if there is um, that is the cause or there, there is tamponade. That would require a more thorough examination, even echocardiography. If you're not adept at using echocardiography and looking for the, the subtle signs of tamponade on the cardiac echo, you, just a simple thing to check is to do a um, pulsus paradoxicus measurement, which is, I don't know how many of us have done manual blood pressure measurements, but that's the only way to really do it now. And I'm often teaching residents how to do that. But it's a very simple thing, and once somebody has an obvious abnormal pulsus paradoxicus, it's quite obvious when you try to manually measure the blood pressure. Another cardiac cause is acute coronary ischemia. In the elderly especially, um, we all know that um, angina can be an angina equivalent. And with an acute MI in the elderly, sometimes shortness of breath is all they have. There's not a significant or any component sometimes of chest pain in their presentation. Finally, um, a, last, a last cause or classification that you could throw up for acute dyspnea or hypoxia would be neuromuscular causes. Uh, which we don't, I would admit that we don't see very often, but it's something to, to think about as a potential cause for acute dyspnea. So just a quick review of a good general approach to patients who present to the ED with shortness of breath. There's five categories of patients we should think about. First, we should think about respiratory disease, which we'll talk about in this episode quite a bit. Next is the uh, cardiac categorization. Remember that the most common presenting symptom of the very elderly for MI is shortness of breath and not chest pain. And also consider pericardial effusion or tamponade, which is often missed initially. So use your ED ultrasound in patients who are short of breath, NYD, and you can pick this up. Next is anemia. As Dr. Foote mentioned, a hemoglobin of less than 80 is very likely to cause shortness of breath on exertion. Next is neuromuscular, like Guillain-Barre syndrome, for example. And lastly, metabolic acidosis. So patients that are trying to blow off that CO2 will appear dyspneic. Okay, so we're going to get into some of these life-threatening causes of dyspnea soon. But before we get into all these serious causes of dyspnea, there's one diagnosis uh, that we actually see quite often, but we often don't know what to do with, or we're not sure whether there's something serious going on or not, and that is medically unexplained dyspnea, or MUD. Dr. Foote, can you explain to our listeners what MUD is and how to diagnose it? So the typical patient with MUD, the person who's usually otherwise young and healthy, with normal vital signs, a normal exam, no underlying cardiopulmonary disease on, on past history, and they often, often the way they, they distinguish themselves is by the history, and there's certain predictive things they, they, can, they will say on history. They will say often that I, I can't just seem to get a full breath. It, my, my breath is it's difficult getting my breath in. And they will often describe these symptoms when they're quiet at night, when, when they're just sitting, not, not with exertion. So those are some of the tip-offs that I find. And um, I don't think it's characterized or even described in many textbooks, but it's something that I do see quite frequently and they're often triaged to the more minor area of the, the eMERGE. And you know, it's really a challenge as to how far to, to, to work them up and how, how, much, how, much, how do you try to reassure them? You know, should you be working these people up for PE or not? 
I was surprised and, and reassured to know that somebody has described this in research, although it has not been extensively researched. It's almost like the irritable bowel of respirology. Um, right. This medically unexplained dyspnea. If you talk to respirologists, they do commonly have patients that have unexplained dyspnea despite you know, exercise stress test, echocardiography, pulmonary function tests, and they still have no explanation, and often they have this benign unexplained dyspnea. The presence of the following symptoms should increase your suspicion of the diagnosis of medically unexplained dyspnea, or MUD. The patient might describe a need to take a deep inspiration or description of their chest as oppressive. They might have anxiety symptoms such as nervousness, restlessness, tingling in the fingers, feet, face, or hands. And in addition, you need to be sure that there's no wheezing or sputum production, a normal physical exam, normal findings on ECG, chest x-ray, and peak flow. If the patients have these features, they may have mud. But like Dr. Foote is about to explain, you need to be careful making this diagnosis in the ED. I, I would be also careful of completely labeling somebody as having you know, you know, medically unexplained dyspnea in the eMERGE based on one visit. It does not mean that they don't need further workup. It just may not need, may, they may not need it that day in the emergency department. Just like I'm a little reluctant to diagnose irritable bowel in the emergency department based on one visit. But this is something that we see um, fairly frequently. And I think there is a real danger in over-investigating people with this medically unexplained dyspnea in the emergency department. Sure. Okay, well, we're going to get on to how to work up the patients with shortness sure. of breath, and then maybe we can come back to that. Dr. Chopra, in terms of this 67-year-old COPD, or in our case that we have here, what would be at the top of your list in terms of the differential diagnosis? Well, Dr. Hellman, I think we should keep a fairly broad differential diagnosis because patients with uh, COPD who present with an apparent exacerbation may have a number of underlying causes for their symptoms, the top of which include an acute viral or bacterial infection. It's important to exclude the presence of pneumonia, pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum. And given most of these patients have smoked for a long period of time, uh, a malignant pleural effusion may be the first presentation of lung cancer. The non-primary lung causes are also uh, important, including congestive heart failure, and as Dr. Foote mentioned, acute coronary syndrome. As many of these patients have coexisting significant coronary pump and valve disease. And uh, in addition, having a high index of suspicion for PE is paramount. In a uh, systematic review of the literature based on evaluation of hundreds of cases of COPD exacerbation published in CHEST in 2009, it was found that 20% of exacerbations were due to PE in both hospitalized and discharged patients. Now that's an incredibly high number. So whenever there's an atypical presentation or a poor response to usual therapy, one must consider alternative causes such as CHF and PE. Again, remembering that these patients will often not present with a typical pleuritic chest pain or PE, and given the wide differential diagnosis, it's often prudent to get a chest x-ray in the workup of a patient with COPD exacerbation severe enough to bring him to the ED, as opposed to the asthma exacerbation, where a chest x-ray is rarely helpful. So in this case, Dr. Foote, how would you interpret the vital signs, just sort of off the bat? Uh, just to remind our listeners, the blood pressure is 150 on 90, heart rate is 110, respiratory rate is 20, and O2 side is 91%. First off, Dr. Hellman, when I, whenever I see a respiratory rate documented at 20 breaths per minute, I'm always suspicious that no one's actually physically checked and measured the respiratory rate. 
somebody here who sounds like they're, you know, have acute dyspnea, it would be rare for them to have um, a respiratory rate as, as low as 20. And I often joke with my residents or the nurses, I say, if you want to make it look like you really checked the respiratory rate, write down 17 or 19. <laughs> and then at, uh, at least people will be less cynical um, that you actually measured, uh, did not measure the um, respiratory rate. So yeah, uh, the res this respiratory rate is suspiciously low for a patient with these type of other vitals in presentation. Um, so I think it's important for us to, you know, I, I often will be checking my own respiratory rate at the bedside. Often the respiratory rate with a patient, where the, when it's measured at triage, when the patient's excited or just arrived, will be very different from the one that um, you are seeing when you are in with the patient. Mm -hmm. Same goes with heart rate. I will recheck my own heart rate and measure it down on my, mark it down on the chart. You can gestalt the respiratory distress by, you know, just watching them. And some people not mention, you know, what's it two word, you know, can they speak two word sentences? Can they not speak at all? Can they speak four or five word sentences? Or are they talking fully, full, full sentences without interruption? That's another meaningful way to assess dyspnea, I think. So continuing with our case here, our COPDers x-ray shows no infiltrate. There's no signs of CHF. His ECG shows sinus tachycardia with right heart strain and no ST changes. And his blood work, including a troponin, is negative. At this point, Dr. Chopra, would you consider doing uh, a BNP? Uh, in episode four on acute heart failure, we spoke with Brian Steinhardt, who does research on BNP uh, in acute heart failure. And at that time, his bottom line was that it's not ready for prime time and that it's rarely useful in the emergency department. However, it does have usefulness in terms of following patients in hospital who have CHF. What do you think does... BNP have any role in patients with unexplained shortness of breath? I think currently in the emergency department, I don't believe the BNP has any significant role to play in this type of a patient or in the acute differentiation of patients with shortness of breath. That's not to say that there won't be complicated patients that you would likely want to admit to hospital that BNP may not play a role afterwards, but I don't find it personally useful to me in the emergency department to order an acute BNP to try to differentiate the patients beyond my clinical assessment, other laboratory tests and imaging. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about BNP later in relation to PE in particular, but in terms of unexplained dyspnea, BNP is really helpful. I think the, the data that I've looked at for BNP is that and if it's very low, like below 50 or below 35, it, it, can, it makes the likelihood of acute CHF very unlikely. And if it's above 500, which is extremely high, then you're really starting to think more of it. But I've worked in hospitals that had BNP in the eMERGE, and we, we, we got along just fine without it. And now that I work somewhere that has it, it's used routinely like that. Once you have a test available, it starts getting used you know, outside the, the parameters it was meant for. Right. Which is really, I think, to mo mostly to, if you know somebody's baseline BNP, they have CHF, it can be useful. And for following them, maybe in hospital. Okay, so let's get back to the case here. So our COPD -er, uh, is admitted to hospital on nebulized and steroid therapy. The next day, the patient has a cardiac arrest and dies. The post-mortem examination shows a massive PE. So let's talk about PE. Dr. Chopra, you had mentioned PE as part of your differential in a patient with COPD and that as many as 20% of patients admitted with COPD will have a PE. You know, when, when we're faced with a patient with shortness of breath or chest pain, we always need to consider this diagnosis. On the other hand, we probably over-investigate ED patients for PE 
In fact, only about five or six percent of patients we do work up for PE in the emergency department have a PE. At least that's the American data that shows that. And the mortality rate is less than one percent at 45 days. But on the other hand, we have a culture of fear not to miss PE. This wide variation in clinical practice makes it a diagnostic challenge, as in this case. One way of helping decide whether PE is worth pursuing in the first place is to figure out what the pretest probability is in order to make a decision of whether or not to do a D-dimer or a CT or a VQ scan. Because once we go down that road, you're potentially exposing the patient to a significant amount of radiation, potential renal failure or allergic reaction from the contrast, and maybe unnecessary anticoagulation with its potential side effects. So let's talk about the pearls from the history, physical, we'll talk about the PERC rule, the Wells criteria, and the risk factors for PE. So we're lucky to have Dr. Chopra here today, who's written chapters in Tintinelli on thromboembolic disease and arterial disease in the previous three editions to give us his words of wisdom on PE. So let's start off with a discussion on risk factors. Dr. Chopra, can you review for us the important risk factors for PE, as well as some of the ones that might be underappreciated, and how important the risk factors are in determining our pretest probability for PE? Of course, uh, the traditional risk factors can be remembered by the mnemonic thrombosis, with the letters in there indicating T for trauma uh, or travel, H for hypercoagulable state or hormone replacement. R for recreational drugs, specifically IV drugs, O for the older age group population, which is more significantly at risk of VTE, M for malignancy, B for birth control pill, O for obstetrical issues and obesity, and S for surgery and immobilization uh, for the eye. And I think the S being one of the most important and underappreciated is sickness, which I feel uh, things like uh, MI, CHF, COPD, nephrotic syndrome, IBD, vasculitis, HIV, and the list is, is endless, need to be considered as very significant risk factors for PE in the risk stratification process. Other high-risk presentations include the postpartum period uh, within six weeks after delivery, which in fact is actually a higher risk period for VTE than during pregnancy itself. However, we do need to also remember that a small but a significant number of patients, let's say 20%, presenting with signs and symptoms of PE have no identifiable risk factors at all. And some may have underlying hypercoagulable states such as factor von Leyden or other conditions that won't declare themselves uh, in the emergency departments and may not actually be detected till months after the initial treatment process is finished. So a lack of any identifiable uh, risk factors, of course, doesn't exclude the possibility of PE, just decreases the initial perceived risk. Okay, so patients with lots of risk factors, that heightens your suspension. Patients with no risk factors, it might lessen your suspicion, but doesn't make it zero. Correct. Okay. One of the things that my residents sometimes ask me is, oh, the patient was just on a flight, so aren't they at risk for a PE? What is it about being in an airplane and what does the literature say about the timing of when they were on the airplane and how long they have to be immobilized for uh, to make it an actual risk factor? Well, well the literature is all over the place on this and I guess you're referring to economy class syndrome where but typically if you look at all the available literature the bottom line is I think any travel where you're kind of mostly immobile in a, in a seat with your legs bent you're probably not orally hydrating yourself as much. 
the venous flow from your legs isn't as normal, puts you at some risk for developing a clot in your leg for sure. If you actually systematically look at it, the majority of people will be asymptomatic and the majority of the people you actually uh, actually look for the clot, you will find a significant small percentage that have a calf clot. The people that typically get into trouble are usually people who have some comorbidity or other risk factors where the clot actually progresses and then embolizes. So clearly people who are in this type of situation traveling relatively long periods of time who have other risk factors uh, uh, as clinicians, we would be particularly concerned about them and consider the use of prophylactic medications. The other risk factor that sometimes it's unclear whether it's actually a risk factor or not is varicose veins. You know, I, I remember when I started practicing that they said, no, varicose veins is not a risk factor. And now they're saying, yes, it is a risk factor. What, what can you tell us about? I think it's clearly a risk factor. The, the question is the clinical significance of the risk factor. So uh, varicose veins, typically, when you when the commonest problem you see in over 95% of the people that have any kind of inflammatory condition of the vein is superficial thrombophlebitis. And now you're getting into a whole different ballgame where we're now learning more things about superficial thrombophlebitis that in the past we used to ignore it. But now we know if it's the clot is more than five centimeters or very close to the upper thigh, that we would actually consider doing some degree of serial imaging. So the bottom line is varicose veins in itself is a risk factor for uh, forming clots. Fortunately, typically the clots are small and don't usually get into trouble, like only, for example, 3% of them will thromboembolize. But again, the it all boils down to the entire case scenario of the patient, elderly with other risk factors, you'd be a little bit more concerned about progression. Like we saw in this case, PE and COPD have a lot of overlapping symptoms and signs. What factors about the clinical presentation can help us differentiate between PE and COPD? Well, first of all, it's very difficult. I think a high index of suspicion is required. Unusual presentations or a lack of improvement to usual therapy should raise consideration of the possibility of PE. As, as we've mentioned, a quarter of people admitted to hospital with COPD exacerbation have the disease. 20% of all comers, whether they're discharged or hospital, have the disease. So clearly, the, the prevalence is fairly strong. In a, and this was shown in a study of over 200 patients with COPD exacerbation of unclear uh, origin published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2006 to actually try to quantify the risk. And uh, only three risk factors were found to be statistically significant to correlate with PE, a previous history of venous thromboembolism, malignant disease, and a decrease in PCO2 at least five below the baseline. But again, I think it's the index of suspicion that's important. This study where one in every four patients hospitalized had PE was a wake-up call for the ED physician to seriously consider the possibility of PE in every COPD patient without a clearly identifiable cause of the exacerbation, such as a new infection. Okay. So we've talked about the risk factors and how to, how to incorporate the risk factors into your pretest probability of PE. What pearls from the history and physical can you give our listeners in order to help you decide what their pretest probability is besides the risk factors? Well, some of the features on history which can alert you to the possibility of PE include, number one, the abruptness of the symptoms, as two-thirds of the patients describe a rapid onset of symptoms over seconds to minutes. Two, based on a large case series uh, from the 90s, over 90% of patients have dyspnea and or tachypnea. Tachypnea, though, very clearly need to be defined as a respiratory rate over 16. 
And given the finding that it seems that the, the documented uh, respirator, as Dr. Foote has mentioned already, needs to be precisely measured to make sure it's not the usual uh, respiratory rate that we often note in, in most of our patients. Number three, with respect to the chest pain, less than two-thirds of the patients have pleuritic chest pain. Uh, a minority, 10 to 15 percent, have non-pleuritic chest pain. Less than half are tachycardic, and less than a third actually have hemoptysis. And often I have our residents or, or medical students come up and say they found reproducible chest pain or tenderness in our patients. And we know that can occur in 20% of MI patients. It can occur in 20% of patients with PE. So clearly not something you would want to hang your hat on and get fooled into making a diagnosis of MSK chest pain. Similarly, a low-grade fever may also present in patients with PE and should not necessarily lead us down the road of an infectious cause. So changes in breathing are the key, and in our older patients with comorbidity who can present atypically without any chest pain, but usually have evidence of respiratory changes, including sometimes low oxygen saturation. It's only about 3% of patients that have absolutely no chest pain, no shortness of breath, no tachypnea, and they can be an incredible diagnostic challenge when they present with atypical symptoms like weakness and syncope and altered mental status or, or even vomiting. But again, these are our older patients with significant pre-existing disease. And I would also keep in mind that some of these patients will have a very low heart rate despite a new PE because they're on nodal blocking medications such as beta or calcium channel blockers, which prevent the tachycardic response. Also with a massive PE, the right heart, uh, heart outflow obstruction, you may be able to detect signs of right heart failure on physical exam, such as an elevated JVP, and with the increasing availability of bedside ultrasound, again, as Dr. Foote mentioned, can actually be looking directly at the heart to look for a dilated right, right ventricle or a dilated right atrium, with, particularly with patients with hemodynamic instability, can be very useful in making the diagnosis. But physical exam is usually not particularly helpful to include or exclude a pulmonary embolism, but may help you in the detection of other diseases such as CHF. Mm-hmm. Dr. Foote, do you have any clinical pearls in terms of the history and physical for trying to come up with a pretest probability for PE? Well, and for COPD patients in particular, I, I'm always wary of COPDers because we often do jump to the conclusion that it's a COPD exacerbation. For me, it really is the response to treatment in the emergency department. And often asking the patient, um, does this feel like your previous COPD exacerbations? Often patients' exacerbations feel similar. They have the you know, the change of the sputum, and so this can often be described as quite different. I do also take a look back. A lot of times, since these studies of the prevalence of PE with COPD have been out, a lot of people, a lot of these COPDers will get admitted. If you go back, they will often have repeated CTs while they're admitted. So I do go back and have a look and, and see how many times they've had um, CTs, and if it's been checked several times, I, I often will be a little less suspicious. In terms of determining whether we're going to even do a D-dimer or a CT or workup patients, uh, most of us have heard of the PERC rule. Just to refresh your memory, if you haven't heard of the PERC rule, it uses eight criteria to determine whether any workup is needed for PE. It's only in patients who you think that by gestalt are at low risk for PE. Specifically, you think that there's less than a 15% chance of PE by gestalt. There's a mnemonic to remember the PERC rule, and that is had clots. H for hormones, that is estrogen, A for age less than 50, D for DVT or PE history, C for no coughing blood or hemoptysis, 
L for no lower extremity swelling unilaterally, O for O2 sat less than 95%, and T for tachycardia of 100 or more, and S for surgery or trauma in the past four weeks. If all these criteria are fulfilled, then the patient has a less than 1% chance of PE, and you don't need to do any testing like D-dimer or CT scan. How do you think we should be using the PERC rule in working up our patients with undifferentiated shortness of breath? Do you find it useful? Uh, do you teach it to your residents? What do you think? Well, first, I'd like to clarify that PERC is a step two decision support. So only to be applied, as you mentioned, after risk stratification is done either by clinical gestalt from an experienced eMERGE doc or by a validated clinical instrument such as WELLS. In low or very low risk population, a negative PERC can help exclude PE and mitigate any further testing, as you mentioned, Dr. Hellman. However, the PERC rule only applies to a population where the prevalence of the disease is low. In Canadian EDs, if you look at the data bank of Phil Wells from Ottawa, of every 100 patients that are MERS docs in Canada investigate for PE, we have eight positive results. So about 8%. So clearly the prevalence would be less than 10% of these patients. And the PERC rule works fine. However, two studies have shown very clearly that when you apply to a population where the prevalence of PE is higher than 20%, then the rule does not work. It underestimates severity. So PERC only in low-risk patients where the prevalence of the disease is probably, in fact, probably less than 15%. I do teach the PERC rule to my residents. I find it quite useful. I think it's, it's a limited the number of times that, that I have ordered um, D-dimer in the low-risk patients. I do find it's difficult sometimes when the people have ordered the D-dimer without considering the PERC rule, like when it's ordered from triage blood work by the nurses or when the residents have ordered it without thinking about whether it should be ordered. I call it playing the D-dimer lottery. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, we'll definitely we'll get on to the, the D-dimer in a minute. With the PERC rule, there was a study that just came out recently that showed that the PERC rule wasn't actually good enough to rule out PE in low-risk patients. Dr. Chopra, can you tell us about that? It wasn't low-risk patients, but again, that was one of the two studies in thrombosis and hemostat. They applied the rule to a population where the prevalence of PE was 21%. So given our prevalence is less than 10%, we're good to go. But clearly, two of these were European studies, and they obviously in terms of their selection, the patients they selected to do the uh, to perform the test on, the PERC rule, uh, the prevalence was too high for the PERC rule to be useful. So bottom line is, in general, in the Canadian population, the way eMERGE physicians seem to select patients for investigation, the PERC rule should work fairly well. Okay, great. So the important part there is that your gestalt for the patient having a PE is low to begin with in order to use the PERC rule at all. I would use the caution I would use still, though, is the gestalt is, um, is a bit of a nefarious concept i often use it as the like, you know, my spider sense if i get the, the my spider senses are tingling about um, whether there could there's something odd going on i may not apply the perk rule because we've got to use our judgment there are certain cases where these guidelines will let you down absolutely in fact just last night my colleague showed me this case that he had of a 29 year old male who had three days of pleuritic chest pain and a slight shortness of breath on exertion, but no other symptoms. He had absolutely no risk factors for thromboembolic disease. His vitals were perfectly normal with an O2 sat of 97% of room air, no tachycardia, normal blood pressure, and his respiratory rate at triage was documented as 20. This patient was PERC negative. 
My colleague ordered a D-dimer, and the D-dimer was high, the patient went on to have a CT, and he, lo and behold, had a PE. I asked my colleague why he did a D-dimer in the first place, and he, just like Dr. Foote had just mentioned, he had this spider sense that it could be a PE, and he kind of ignored the PERC rule and got the D-dimer anyways. The other thing with this patient was he had been treated with an IM injection of analgesic, and after he had the injection, he had a syncopal episode. My colleague told me that he thought it was most likely vasobagal syncope, but he thought this guy does have pleuritic chest pain, and if you combine that with my sense that this might be a PE, and now he's had a syncopal episode, I think I'll go ahead and do the D-dimer. So sometimes the PERC rule will fail. When I went to look at the patient myself, I noticed that his respiratory rate was 26. So again, this might be a case of no one really checking accurately initially what his respiratory rate was. So again, if your spider sense is telling you that this could be a PE and you're worried, then you shouldn't be using any rules to guide your judgment. Go with your clinical gestalt. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah. Let's say the patient's failed the PERC rule and you've decided that the pretest probability of PE is high enough that you want to do a workup. The first consideration is whether or not to do a D-dimer. How should we be using D-dimer in our workup of patients with undifferentiated shortness of breath and in our patients who we might suspect have PE? Use of the D-dimer is a very controversial issue. I've spoken about it extensively. I think the ground rules must be followed before one would even contemplate using a D-dimer. In my opinion, the ground rules are, first of all, you should only request a D-dimer if your lab actually has a sensitive D-dimer, such as an ELISA or immunoturbometric test such as LEA. The older, less sensitive D-dimer assays like the latex tests are fine when you're trying to work up for DIC, but they are not helpful for the eMERGE physician for uh, working up for VTE. The sensitive assays typically have a sensitivity over 95% or higher, so that giving a negative predictive value and low risk low to moderate risk patients in nearly 100%. Some guidelines suggest using a D-dimer only in low risk patients, for example, uh, a lot of the American guidelines, but it clearly can be applied to moderate risk patients uh, or in general non-high risk patients according to many of the European guidelines per se. So that's uh, low or moderate risk according to the Wells criteria? Low or moderate risk, well, if you look at the 2011 ASAP guidelines, they say that an experienced Physician, they use the they use it very carefully. Experienced physicians, Gestalt seems to perform fairly well when compared to either the Wells or the Geneva. So I would say that any which way you risk stratify, whether it's clinical Gestalt from an experienced physician or a validated clinical instrument, risk stratification to the low group in general. But as I say, there's evidence to apply it even to moderate risk. Can be using the D-dimer. So that's step number one. Everyone agrees that a D-dimer is not to be used in high pretest cl clinical probability patients as nearly two-thirds of them actually have the disease. A couple of major centers, for example, here at Hamilton, use the less sensitive qualitative D-dimer, uh, the simply red assay, in low-risk patients, but this is not generally suggested in the very undifferentiated eMERGE population. So you have a sensitive D-dimer, 
In a low-risk patient, the third criteria that must be met is that you're confident that the assay will be negative. Large single uh, center studies done by Perrier in Europe showed that when indiscriminately applied to the ED patients suspected of having PE, you're looking at two-thirds of, of the D-dimer assays being positive. So for PE, we're looking for a negative D-dimer assay to exclude the disease. Having a positive D-dimer has been shown over and over again to lead to over-investigation of the ED patient as the ED doc becomes convinced that the patient in front of them has VTE or another sinister disease. So don't order D-dimers on patients, such as the very elderly who almost always have a positive test. Patients who are acutely ill with CHF, pneumonia, stroke patients, a history of recent surgery, trauma, active cancer, and so on. And the last and final criteria before you order the D-dimer is to be sure that if you get a negative test, you weren't gonna end up ordering the same imaging anyways. For example, if the D-dimer is negative, but you end up ordering a CT chest to find out if the patient has something else going on to explain the symptoms, then the D-dimer often didn't add any value, but ended up adding to the cost of the patient and increased wait times for the patient. So in conclusion, you must clear four hurdles before ordering the DNAM on your patient, make it a cost-effective and useful test. Let's review Dr. Chopra's four hurdles you must clear before ordering a D-dimer. One, make sure the D-dimer that you have in your hospital is one of the highly sensitive ones like the ELISA, for example. Number two, make sure the patient is low risk by Wells criteria or the Geneva score or by clinical gestalt if you're an experienced eMERGE doc. Be pretty confident that the D-dimer will be negative so don't order it in the very elderly patient with known metastatic cancer, for example, or the patient in very late pregnancy, because those patients will very likely be positive. And fourth, and lastly, if you're going to be getting a CT chest even if the D-dimer was negative, or for some other reason, then there's no point in ordering the D-dimer in the first place. It, in general, it, it can prevent the young, low-risk patients sometimes from, from having to have a CT chest which we know can increase your lifetime risk of a, a serious cancer by about one in a thousand. Some of the things about the Wells criteria that bother me are the, the, the three points they use for PE is the most likely diagnosis, which is essentially gestalt anyway. I mean, it's interesting that both of these rules incorporate gestalt into the rule. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's the, clearly the problem with these validated clinical instruments. The number one thing is the subjectivity of alternative disease. You have to, you have to basically imply from the rule is you either know the diagnosis or you suspect something else confidently. And that's very subjective. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I mean, all this being said about prediction rules, do they improve risk stratification over and above just the clinical gestalt of your assessment if you're an experienced emergency doctor? You know, I know more than a few competent emergency doctors who don't use PERC rule or Wells criteria or D-dimers, and they simply use their gestalt based on history, physical, ECG, and chest x-ray to either do a CTA or not do a CTA. What does the literature say, Dr. Chopra, about how good an experienced doctor's gestalt is over any of these rules or D-dimers? So, I mean, the preface in the past has been that we need an objective tool because of the heterogeneity and judgment between eMERGE physicians looking at the same patient. So there is some literature saying that eMERGE dogs tend to typically underestimate patients with, uh, and, and, and risk stratify them into low-risk patients more so than a validated clinical instrument. Having said that, when, com when actually looked retrospectively at meta-analysis, and as, as, I, as I mentioned, the ASAP 2011 clinical policy, under clinical policy uh, guidelines, 
uh, it states very clearly that experienced physicians gestalt seems to rank fairly well with a validated clinical instrument, i.e. we can generally pick out the low and the high-risk patients. Just to remind you of the Wells criteria for PE, there are seven points. One is suspected DVT. Two, an alternative diagnosis is less likely than PE. Three, a heart rate over 100 beats per minute. Four, immobilization or surgery in the previous four weeks. Five, a previous DVT or PE. Six, hemoptysis. Seven, malignancy, either a patient who has malignancy who's on treatment, has been treated in the last six months, or is palliative. If you're low risk by well score with a normal D-dimer, then you don't need any further testing with a negative predictive value of 99.5%. Now, I can never remember all these points, so sometimes I use mdcalc.com. That's mdcalc.com, where you can plug in the points and it spits out whether the patient is low, medium, or high risk. So we've talked about D-dimer in the general population. What about D-dimer in pregnant patients for ruling out PE? Is there any role for D-dimer in the pregnant patient who presents with undifferentiated shortness of breath? There were recently guidelines published again last year, 2011, by the American Thoracic Society and the Society of Thoracic Radiology, specifically trying to answer the questions about investigation of PE in pregnancy. Uh, One thing we have to keep in mind, the guidelines are based on expert opinion after a review of the literature. The experts in this panel included OB-GYN, RESP, radiologists, but interestingly, no eMERGE docs, the people who actually do the investigations for these patients. They recommended not to use a D-dimer in uh, pregnancy. I have a problem with the recommendation. First of all, as they even state in the recommendation, is based on weak evidence, very poor quality evidence. What that means is you're really looking at the literature, there just isn't enough information and the most conservative recommendation would be since we don't know for sure why not not use the test secondly the recommendation is based on pool data from all three trimesters trimesters of pregnancy when we know very well that the d-dimer has performed well in the first trimester of pregnancy when it's negative in about half of the cases though there is no validated risk stratification to applied specifically to the pregnant population a combination of clinical gestalt that states that the patient is low risk in the first trimester of pregnancy with a negative D-dimer, in my mind, excludes venous thromboembolism. We have clearly acknowledged that there will always be the rare case of a negative D-dimer patient with a PE, just like their case reports consistently in the literature, patients found on, uh, to be negative on CT, and even angio, 1-2% to of the time, who ultimately get diagnosed with PE, either by, on pathology or after the fact. A secondary issue has been raised by experts in the field, and that includes predicting the expected rise in the D-dimer. On average, you would expect the D-dimer to increase by about 30% by the end of the first trimester, double in the second, and triple in the third trimester. However, this is a very imprecise science and and cannot, in my opinion, be used to aid in excluding PE in the pregnant patient. Jeff Klein, who's a big researcher in, in thromboembolic disease in the States, has done a few papers on using a cutoff for each trimester. So you think some more research is still needed before we actually use this sort of cutoff? The advantage Jeff has is he's got a huge bank of patients and he keeps them up. They're all observational. It's all observational data. So mm-hmm. looking back at cases in his data bank, he's found 
typically how what these levels can be on patients but the bottom line is we don't know how to interpret individual level on an individual patient i.e i don't think we can confidently exclude or include vt based on the expected rise in this population of patients okay so in your expert opinion first trimester low gestalt negative d-dimer rules out pe yes and in terms of the postpartum period and the second and third trimester D-dimer is not useful. I don't believe it's useful. So we talked about D-dimer in the general population. We talked about D-dimer in pregnancy. We touched upon this, that D-dimer increases with age. How can we incorporate this into our clinical decision-making? I mean, do we just think, well, anyone who's elderly, forget about the D-dimer, because just like in late pregnancy, it's probably going to be positive and it won't be helpful. Is there a way that we can incorporate the age with the D-dimer level to still make it a useful test? A D-dimer is just a breakdown product of fibrin and rises with age. So it'll only be negative, for example, in 10% of patients above the age of 80 to exclude PE as opposed to patients under the age of 40 where it'll be negative on average 60% of the time. There's evidence from European trials, for example, one uh, published in BMJ almost two years ago, to indicate that we should have higher cutoff values for older patients. A suggested formula is a patient's age times 10. And so, for example, a 70-year-old would be allowed to have an upper limit of 700 rather than the traditional 500 mics per liter cutoff. This seems like a very reasonable approach in low-risk patients. I think this can certainly be applied. Most of us are not applying it because we actually haven't seen any randomized data, but it completely makes sense. Just to clarify, that was a BMJ from March 2010, and it was for patients aged 50 or older, the patient's age times 10 would be the cutoff for the Would be the upper limit cutoff, yeah. Okay. All right. So I guess we'll wait for a, a randomized control trial for that to know for sure, but it certainly makes sense. And it's just good to know that D-dimer does increase with age. And so we should incorporate that into our decision-making when we do get a D-dimer back. So we've talked about D-dimer in the general population. We've talked about D-dimer in the pregnant patient. We've talked about D-dimer in the elderly. Just before we leave D-dimer, what about the patient who's on anticoagulation? So someone comes in who's on Coumadin, for example, and they have a story that is sort of low or moderate risk for PE, how does that change the D-dimer? So nowadays we seem to see a lot of patients on oral anticoagulants, and I think this issue will come up more now that we're having two, three newer fancy oral anticoagulants on the market. So clearly you can get a false negative D-dimer assay in patients who are on anticoagulants because the anticoagulants themselves prevent clot extension. And so it just needs to be kept in mind that when you're investigating these patients, most of them, first of all, will not be low risk, that a negative D-dimer is not sufficient enough for you to feel confident enough to stop the testing. So maybe you shouldn't order it in the first place. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, if they have a therapeutic INR and it's reliably therapeutic, I think that the, my general feeling is that these people are lower risk because they're being pro adequately prophylaxed. Right. Um, so I, I, for me, it's, it's less of an issue. I can't think of the time I've ever ordered a D-dimer on somebody who's been on warfarin. Right. So, I mean, that's that's not in any clinical decision rule. No, but just... Yeah. I mean, for me, too, I think for patients who are already anticoagulated with this therapeutic INR, 
if they come in with vague shortness of breath, their chances of having a PE are much, much, much lower. Yeah, the only thing I would keep in mind is that there's also very complicated patients who are had have had an event, then come back with persistent or new symptoms. So a lot of our hematology specialists, they actually do get a DDEM or baseline, and they follow the level over the next couple of weeks mm. to try to determine an acute on chronic VTE event. But in terms of the emergency physician, it really doesn't play much of a role. Okay. One last question about D-dimer. <laughs> Just because D-dimer is so controversial, and uh, I think the more we know about D-dimer, the better we are to be able to utilize it in the emergency department. In patients where thrombus has been excluded, let's say you've got a 60-year-old man with no known DVT risk factors who gets worked up for a DVT for, because of a swollen leg and has negative Dopplers one week apart, does a high D-dimer result indicate a possibility of underlying malignancy? And should that high D-dimer push us to look for occult cancer and refer patients, maybe for an outpatient occult malignancy workup? I think most patients with an elevated D-dimer do not end up having a clinically noticeable malignancy. That's an important point. However, patients who have a very high D-dimer results, often in the thousands, in the absence of a proven VTE, have a statistically higher chance of cancer, including breast, prostate, bowel, gynecological, and lung cancers. It would be very reasonable to ask these patients to follow up with their primary care physician for a risk evaluation to determine whether any further testing is necessary. I clearly do not think this is in the realm of the emergency physician to decide in the episodic care that we provide. Mm -hmm. I've, I've said this before on the program that our primary responsibility are as emergency doctors, but there's so much we can do in the emergency room to help patients that aren't acute emergencies as well. And I think this is a good example of, you know, not to just ignore a really high D-dimer when they don't, when you've ruled out any acute illness. We touched on this earlier about the value of BNP in patients who present with undifferentiated shortness of breath. What's the value of BNP in the patient who you think has a high pretest probability of PE? And what about troponin? Uh, are BNP and troponin helpful tests in the patient who you highly suspect have a PE? I don't think you should routinely order troponin or BNP or pro-BNP in ED patients. If a troponin is indicated to investigate the possibility of an acute coronary syndrome, then of course order it. Troponin can rise with a PE, and elevations of troponins are prognostic and predict worst outcome for PE patients, as they do for ACS patients. And similarly, BNP or pro-BNP is also prognostic and may help our consultants for patients who are admitted to hospital, for example. But I think the routine use of these tests will often lead to over-investigation and over-admission of these patients, the literature clearly suggested that these patients who have significant elevation of these assays do poorly, but there's nothing to show that if you treat these patients more aggressively than you would have based on clinical presentations, that there's any change in morbidity or mortality at 30 days. Some people have defined submassive PE as an acute PE without systemic hypotension, that is a blood pressure of less than 90, but with either RV dysfunction or an elevated troponin. 
And the way you decide whether someone has RV dysfunction or not, one of them is whether they have an elevated BNP of greater than 90. The other ones are an echo showing RV dilatation or RV systolic dysfunction, a CT showing RV dilatation, or the ECG showing new right bundle branch block, anteroseptal ST elevation or depression, or anteroseptal T-wave inversion. Whether someone has a submassive PE or not is important because some people do recommend thrombolysis in patients with submassive PE, which we'll talk a little bit about more later. Dr. Chopra is now going to talk a little bit about BNP and submassive PE. Now, what about those patients who they're pretty sick with a PE, they're not in shock, but they're pretty sick, and you're thinking this might be a submassive PE. We'll talk about this a little bit later when we talk about thrombolytics. Um, my understanding is that in order to define someone with submassive PE, an elevated BNP is, can be one of the criteria. I think if clinically, based on clinical, ECG, all the tests that you routinely do, you don't detect submassive PE. And the only way you detect a so-called submassive PE is by a biochemical test. Then you never needed to treat it any differently than if you didn't know it was a submassive PE. And as uh, Dr. Helman pointed out, the previous literature, you know, there's only one single study that's ever shown some leaning towards treating patients with submassive PE who are clinically hemodynamically stable. Any differently than if you didn't know they had a submassive PE only showed some soft parameter changes and has clearly not been adapted to clinical practice. I, I think when we start using thrombolytics in an infrequent situation like this, especially in the emergency room, I think there's going to be problems if you're not used to doing it a lot and you're not used to monitoring it properly. Just like with the, you know, for the people who are giving thrombolytics for stroke, when they don't do it very often, the outcomes are not as good as in research studies. And I think that it shouldn't really be up to the eMERGE doc to initiate thrombolytics for some massive PE. I would let the people who are going to be looking after them make that decision. I think we need to diagnose it. And obviously the people who are near cardiac arrest with a, with a massive PE, that's a different story. But um, as far as I don't really worry myself with thrombolytics for PE in the standard eMERGE patient. Let's get back a little bit to the pretest probability. We've talked about risk factors. We've talked about history and physical. We've talked about when you might want to do a D-dimer. Let's talk about the chest x-ray. What do you look for on chest x-ray for patients who you suspect might have a PE? Chest x-rays are ordered primarily to exclude other causes of shortness of breath, such as pneumonia, congestive heart failure, pneumothorax, and are a prerequisite to doing a VQ scan. The original PyoPed study showed that only 12% of chest x-rays in PE patients are entirely normal. But the vast types of ab abnormalities found in the x-ray, such as atelectasis, pleural effusion, COPD changes, etc., are not helpful in the diagnosis of PE. The more, somewhat more specific findings of Hampton's hump or Westermark sign are found in less than 15% of image cases and often retrospectively when you actually find out that they have PE on some other imaging. So patients with PE may have nonspecific findings of elevated hemidiaphragm, unilateral pleural effusion, cardiac enlargement and infiltrates. These findings are nonspecific for PE and overlap with other diseases such as I mentioned pneumonia and CHF. Mm -hmm. Okay, I guess you know the flip side of that is if you see someone who looks like they have an infiltrate on chest x-ray, but clinically they're not really fitting with pneumonia, then maybe that should trigger you to think, oh, maybe they have a PE. 
Another reason to order the chest x-ray in these cases would be to make the radiologist working with you a little less cynical. When you call up and ask for that CT chest and they say, what does the chest x-ray show? And you said, I haven't ordered one. Sometimes that's not received right. uh, very well. Uh, you could always lie and say they had one in the periphery <laughs> and it was reported as normal. <laughs> but we, I, I, obviously, we know that there are major limitations to chest x-rays. They're very useful, but they have to be you know, correlated clinically. So I think it's important to emphasize that the vast majority of patients with PE will have a chest x-ray abnormality. Cardiac enlargement can mimic CHF. Patients can have pleural effusions, elevated hemidiaphragm, pulmonary artery enlargement, atelectasis, and parenchymal pulmonary infiltrates like a pneumonia. So chest x-ray findings with PE can mimic those of pneumonia or pleural effusions, but the presence of a pleural effusion increases the likelihood of PE in young patients who present with acute pleuritic chest pain. So that's about chest x-ray. What about ECG? Well, up to a third of ECGs show no significant abnormality in patients with PE. The commonest changes include sinus tachycardia, and as I mentioned, of course, not in patients who are already on nodal blockers. Then there's the signs of right ventricular strain pattern, including the famous S1, Q3, T3, which is actually neither sensitive or specific. You could look for more specific changes noted in the right ventricular strain pattern, including an incomplete right bundle branch block, and as recently described by uh, Amoma 2, flip T waves in both anterior and inferior leads, but that really only happens in, in less than 10% of patients. More importantly, though, I think the ECG is, is an important tool to rule out other important diseases such as ST elevation, MI, or pericarditis. I don't hang my hat on the ECG or the chest x-ray, but they're they're all part of your gestalt when you're trying to work these patients up. And there are certain high-risk things on the ECG that, if you do see them, make me a little more concerned. But uh, um, it's not a, a they're not rule-out tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have seen a handful of patients with what you were describing, the flip T's in the anterior and the inferior leads, who tipped me off that they were a PE because it's extremely unlikely that with those findings that it would be ischemia just because it doesn't make anatomical sense for ischemia. So although you'll rarely see it, when you do see it, it it apparently does have quite a high specificity to rule in the diagnosis. So chest x-ray and ECG are normal in about a quarter of patients with PE, but if you see things like right heart strain, incomplete right bundle branch block, or T-wave inversions in the anteroseptal leads, especially if you have them in the inferior leads as well in the ECG, or if you see an unexplained pleural effusion, raised hemidiaphragm, atelectasis, or even infiltrates on the chest x-ray, you should think about the possibility of PE. So let's move on to CT angiogram. First, how good is CT angiogram for diagnosing PE in terms of false positives and false negatives? And how should we incorporate this into our clinical decision-making? I think with increasing generation of CT scanners, the sensitivities and specificities are now excellent. The state of the CTs are essentially 100% sensitive for central clots and over 90% sensitive for any other clinically significant clots. The specificities are fairly high at about 91%. And the number of non-diagnostic studies for CT are, are, about, are less than 10%. So for non-high-risk patients, a technically adequate study rules out PE with a negative predictive value nearly 100%. 
However, if the pretest clinical probability of PE is high, meaning a pretest chance of having PE in, uh, in about two thirds of patients, then even a negative CT scan mandates further investigations, which could include ultrasound dopplers of the legs. The clinically significant pearl to remember is that even with the pretest clinical probability of PE is high and the CT chest and duplex are negative, the risk of short-term recurrent PE is extremely small, near zero. So you have ample time to investigate these more difficult patients in the following week or two, even without anticoagulation. Okay, so if you have someone who comes with a classic story with lots of risk factors, you're quite sure they have a PE, and then you get the CTA and you're surprised to get a negative read on it, then you'll still go on to do Doppler's of the legs, but it's not too much of a rush. Dr. Chopra, you had touched upon clinically significant PEs found on the CT. What about patients with tiny subsegmental PEs? You know, from autopsy studies, we know that there's a significant minority of people who have evidence of PE at autopsy, but few of them had PE as their cause of death. There are probably thousands of people walking around with subsegmental PEs who don't have any symptoms and probably don't need any treatment. What do you do with the patients in the emergency department who come in with undifferentiated shortness of breath and a CT shows subsegmental PEs? How can we be sure that their shortness of breath is from these subsegmental PEs and how should they be managed? Yes, this is becoming uh, a more significant problem as our CT scanners are becoming more and more advanced. They're finding smaller and smaller clots and as you mentioned, of unclear significance, and this is a difficult area. About 6 to 30% of scans are now showing isolated subsegmental clots, which are of, again, unclear clinical importance. So if the subsegmental clots are associated with a bigger clot, you're done, you're treated as PE. But for example, an autopsy of a patient uh, who's shot to death may show a subsegmental clots in the lungs, but we're pretty sure that the clot didn't kill the patient. So. Uh, my gestalt of the isolated subsegmental clots found on CT uh, don't necessarily need to be treated, but because we currently have no way of knowing which are significant and insignificant in the patient, we're investigating for PE, so obviously you had a suspicion already. The standard of care currently, till more evidence comes forward, that we will be treating the vast majority of these patients with anticoagulation to follow up with some specialist outpatient who can reassess the situation. So we've talked about CT. What about VQ scan? It seems like we're hardly using VQ scan anymore in the emergency department. Is, is VQ scan dead? Is there any role for VQ scan still in the workup for PE? It's obviously not dead, but I don't order it very often anymore. We talked about some of the cases in, in a pregnant patient. For instance, if, you're, if they have a normal chest texture, a pregnant patient, their a lung scan may be the, the first test to order because of the, the slightly lower radiation. And then, of course, people with contrast allergies, they would be another patient group where you would consider using a VQ scan. But I have heard several respirologists say that if um, somebody were to or invent the VQ scan today, that it probably wouldn't go very far, <laughs> wouldn't get a patent. Right. So generally speaking, with a VQ scan, if you have a young patient with no known lung disease and a normal VQ, then that can rule out PE with 
very high predictive value. Yeah, as long as the clinical uh, a clinical pretest clinical probability is congruent with that, and I and I agree with Dr. Fry. I mean, it seems like CT is replacing the Q scan. But it's interesting now there seems to be a little bit of a resurgence in terms of using VQ in selected patients, one of which, uh, some of which Dr. Ford mentioned would be the patient with the contracts allergy and, and the pregnant. But in fact, you get a young, healthy female and a lot of radiologists and emerge physicians are questioning, why don't we just get a VQ scan? Obviously, the problem is on average, two thirds of them are not helpful. They're not diagnostic. But Dr. Hellman, I think you've hit it on the head there. If you select the right patient, the young, healthy patient, no lung disease, normal chest X-ray, the chance that the VQ will be diagnostic, i.e. normal or high probability, is pretty high. So I think there is a role, and I think with this radiation risk, and as Dr. Foote mentioned, a single CT adding some cumulative increased risk in, in cancer throughout the lifetime, I think we're rethinking the, where we would place the VQ scan nowadays in young, healthy women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pendulum seems to swing with all these things. So VQ scan still plays a role in pregnant patients suspected of PE. Let's talk a little bit more about PE in pregnancy. What do the recent guidelines in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine from November 2011 say about the algorithm for working up suspected PE in pregnancy? Wow, this is really a controversial area, and but I'm glad these guidelines are now published. I think they're helpful. I see people referring to them. So let's look at a little bit of what is recommended by these guidelines. Basically, the guidelines state that though the amount of radiation exposure to the fetus from a VQ or CT is clinically insignificant to cause growth abnormalities or cancer, the amount of breast or lung radiation to the mother is significantly greater with the CT than the VQ scan. Plus, VQ can be adapted to be only done as a perfusion study and with half dose uh, of the uh, technetium-labeled albumin with increased IV hydration and frequent bladder evacuation to minimize the risk uh, to the mother or fetus. Given these issues, the guidelines suggest that the VQ scan is the preferred imaging, should be the first imaging test if the chest x-ray is normal or near normal in these patients. The reason for this is that if the chest x-ray is normal, then the VQ is likely going to be diagnostic 94% of the time, i.e. it will likely be normal or high probability allowing the ED doc to make a clear decision without any further testing. However, if the chest x-ray is significantly abnormal, such as with a pre-existing lung disease, again, uncommon in pregnancy, then the CT is the better initial modality, most likely to give you a negative or a positive study. Several physicians in the past have suggested doing Doppler ultrasound of the legs as the initial study, given it involves no issue of radiation exposure to the mother or the fetus. The problem with this strategy is that it has an extremely low yield. The prevalence of PE in pregnant patients investigated in Canada for PE is only 5%. Assuming only a third of these patients with PE have a positive duplex for a proximal clot, that means you would find only one or two positive duplex scans in every 100 patients investigated. So this is clearly not a practical or a cost-effective strategy. The only exception, I would say, is the female patient who actually presents with unilateral signs or symptoms of a DT, uh, DVT then it's more worthwhile to do the ultrasound as a first test as it avoids all that other concern for radiation, will be positive in about 10% of patients uh, and even higher in the first trimester because uh, there seems to be less unilateral swelling issues 
early on than later on. And lastly, if anybody is wondering about doing an MRI, just keep in mind that the current literature suggests that MRI has a significantly lower sensitivity of about 78% compared to CT for PE, and also about a quarter of the studies that are inadequate in these patients. So clearly not yet a test of choice, but I can tell you there's randomized studies going on looking at the two currently. Before we get on to the treatment of PE, Dr. Foote's now going to really nicely sum up how we approach patients with PE and what some of the challenges that there are that still remain. From my perspective with PE in the emergency department, I think that we tend to over-investigate the young, healthy person with normal vital signs who has a bit of pleuritic chest pain. They often get sent in by other clinics or family doctors, and I, I think there's a, um, an error and a tendency to sometimes over-investigate these these young, healthy people with pleuritic chest pain. And the, the, the PERC rule, and even the D-dimer to some extent, has helped me out in dealing with these patients and maybe leading to fewer inappropriate tests that you feel forced into sometimes. And and by the another extension, I think that we often miss, still miss PEs in, in older patients with comorbidities who come in with dyspnea that, that, that's not really clear what the cause is. I think that's why PE is such a popular subject for CME lectures because we all, we all miss it and we will continue to miss it in these older patients with comorbidities. Well put. Let's move on to the treatment of PE. First, in what situations would you recommend treating PE empirically with anticoagulants? If I'm worried enough about a patient to hold them to get imaging, I will often give empiric anticoagulation with low molecular heparin. I think that there's going to be difficult data on this, whether that actually prevents anything. We, we can't show that, but we're often faulted for errors of omission, not commission, in, in emergency medicine and in medicine in general. I've seen data that says if the pretest probability of the PE is greater than 20%, then you should be giving empiric anticoagulation prior to getting the definitive test. So those patients who you have a low clinical gestalt for, you may be ordering a D-dimer on, you're not going to be no. uh, treating empirically. But for those patients with moderate or high pretest probability who you're working up, you'll you'll give them a dose of anoxaparin yes, or fragment. Although I'm not clear if there's any good evidence that giving that one dose before getting the, the definitive test you know, changes any outcomes, but it makes intuitive sense. And I don't think there's a, a lot of risk there since they're going to be, it's a good chance they're going to be getting that medication anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Now, the question is, how long a delay are you willing to accept? And by the way, it doesn't matter, I think, if you use low molecular weight heparin or fondaparinox in this day. As long as you give them some anticoagulation, and I agree, I typically reserve them for the non-high-risk patients. And I can tell you, in Canada, there's several cases reported of patients decompensating over hours while waiting for the test even. So I think we should take a conservative approach to this, particularly knowing that the anticoagulants we use now are so extremely safe. The amount of bleeding they cause is usually negligible and very manageable. So we should definitely be using them even if you have like a several hour delay in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned Fondaparinox. So the anticoagulant choices are IV unfractionated heparin, low molecular weight heparin or fondaparinox. You know, some people would say it doesn't matter what you give them, just give them something. What does the literature say about what might be best in terms of anticoagulation for PE? Yeah, I think there's tons of literature. I think in general, if you can avoid IV unfractionated heparin, it's probably best. It's much more convenient and you get a much more predictable effect 
with giving one shot of low molecular weight heparin or one shot of fondoparinux uh, while waiting for the test to be completed or after the test is positive. And for patients with uh, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, obviously a non-heparin agent is preferred, such as fondoparinux. So that would be another clear example where you wouldn't want to use low molecular weight heparin per se. But Dr. Foot mentioned something very interesting, and that is, well, why should I give the low molecular weight heparin and fondoparinux? It doesn't dissolve the clot, but it certainly prevents propagation of the clot, getting bigger and maybe not embolizing, and it gives time for the body to break down the clot. So it makes intuitive sense, and I don't ever believe anybody's going to do any randomized study to show temporarily when it's the best time to give it. It's a simple, easy, safe gift. Once you've clinched the diagnosis of PE, the options for anticoagulation are low molecular weight heparin, that's fragment or anoxaparin, plus Coumadin. Then after at least five days of the low molecular weight heparin and the INR becoming therapeutic, the low molecular weight heparin can then be stopped. The Bigatran is equally as effective as Coumadin in this respect. The other options besides uh, heparin plus a vitamin K antagonist, which is coming down the pipes and will probably be approved soon for treatment of PE, is rivaroxaban. Rivaroxaban works within a few hours and is taken orally daily. So keep eyes out for these newer medications for the treatment of non-massive PE. In terms of deciding disposition for patients, there's been some recent literature on this in terms of which patients can be sent home with outpatient treatment for their PE. This article I'm referring to is from The Lancet by Ojeski, and it presents a prediction rule of sorts for disposition of patients with PE. I've also heard, again, of doing pro-BNP to help assess whether a patient is safe to go home. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what we should take away from this Ojeski rule uh, from The Lancet? Before I get into a Jeske rule, I would say that there are at least four significant trials in the last decade now that indicate that many patients with PE can be safely discharged home with anticoagulation. The appropriate criteria for outpatient management include hemodynamic stability, no need for supplemental oxygen, no significant comorbidity such as renal failure, COPD, and CHF. And the reason for that is if your cardiovascular reserve is low, the next PE is more likely to kill you and you're probably safer in the first little while to be in hospital. There should be no contraindications to anticoagulation. You should be able to receive daily dose of anticoagulant, whether that's heparin or fondoparinux. You need to have adequate pain control, and you need good social supports. The myth is that uh, very few people made these criteria, but experience at major academic centers, particularly in Canada, which accepted the safe discharge PE patients well before our southern counterparts, suggests that at least a third of patients with acute PE can be discharged from. If you have a well-organized system exist, that exists to follow up patients with a physician experienced in the disease and its management. In terms of the pro-BNP, we certainly haven't adapted it in, in our center. I'm not aware of any center that has routinely adapted it in Canada. And I'm not sure of its utility. The key thing is you can certainly identify tests that can be prognostic and help uh, determine the severity of disease. But if unless it clearly alters your management, which I do not believe ProBNP does right now, I'm not going to use it. I often wonder with these, these discharge rules, a lot of them are quite intuitive. Like no one's going to send somebody with a, a systolic pressure below 90 home or you know a, a major tachycardia home. 
or somebody with needing IV narcotics to control yeah, the pain. These I agree are, completely. A lot of these are or, you know, the, common sense. The unreliable, the socially unreliable situation where those are all pretty intuitive, and I, I don't know if the pro BNP would have made a difference uh, in those patients. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you why I actually like the list. The list is to give people, some physicians who are not as comfortable sending patients home, a checklist to go over so they feel comfortable sending these people home. So while the Ajeski rule can help you be more comfortable discharging some patients with PE, there is another score called the Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, or PESI, for the assessment of short-term risk of death in patients with pulmonary embolism. While calculating the points I don't think is necessary, it's just good to know what's on this list in terms of which patients are at risk for short-term death. And they are age, male sex, history of cancer, history of heart failure, history of chronic lung disease, a pulse over 110, a systolic blood pressure less than 100, a respiratory rate of more than 30, a temperature of less than 36, altered mental status, and an O2 sat less than 90%. Dr. Foote had mentioned that a lot of these are common sense, but I think it's just good to know which patients are at higher risk of having a bad outcome with their PE. We touched a little bit upon thrombolytic therapy for PE. The most recent guidelines suggest that fibrinolytics are indicated for patients with massive PE, which is defined as PE with a sustained systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or persistent profound bradycardia of less than 40 beats per minute with signs and symptoms of shock. What about fibrinolytics for patients with submassive PEs? We talked a little bit about this before. Submassive PEs are those patients who are not in shock, so they have a systolic blood pressure above 90. Should they be thrombolyzed? So I, I think the short answer is that thrombolysis is for, as you mentioned, Dr. Hammer, for uh, persistent hemodynamic instability, but it's also for cardiogenic shock. It can also be used for limb-compromising situations, such as phlegmasia, alba, or cerulea dolens. The patient suspected of having a submassive PE on the basis of an echo or an ECG or an elevated BNP or troponin, in my opinion, do not require thrombolysis. There has never been a morbidity or mortality benefit shown that's clinically significant. But it would not be unreasonable in these cases to speak with your interventional radiologist or your vascular surgeon to discuss on a case-to-case basis where more aggressive therapy is warranted than you are offering. In general, though, Overall, the majority of patients who are found who are clinically stable with submassive PE do just fine, thank you very much, on routine anticoagulation. Some people have wondered about intravenous versus intra-arterial lysis. The most timely and effective way of delivering thrombolysis in the ED is strictly to give a dose, uh, routinely described as 100 milligrams of TPA over two hours, the 10 milligram IV front-loaded bolus, and it has been not shown to be any more efficacious to give it necessarily through interventional procedures with an with a, uh, intra-arterial dose. But I would say that we sometimes will see patients who are in pre-arrest. In those cases, it's recommended they get a one single quick bolus, a 0.6 milligram per kilogram bolus, or 50 milligram IV stat bolus over two minutes. And some of these patients do actually relatively well. The patients who actually go on to complete arrest as you would anticipate, do not do very well. 
And one of the things I've heard is that a lot of EDs now have uh, really only TNK readily available. And just to let you know, there is actually uh, at least 14 case reports of successful TNK use in patients with massive PE. Okay, so the choice of which thrombolytic isn't as important? It isn't. The only thing is if you use the traditional 2R TPA in a person who's pre-arrest, I think that's a bad idea because they obviously want to deliver the therapy as soon as possible. So you should really give a front-loaded significantly higher dose. And as an example, I think of a 0.6 milligram per kilogram or a 50 milligram IV push over two minutes is the way to go. Generally, when we see someone in our resuscitation rooms in the first few minutes of assessment and they're in shock, usually we ask for wide open fluid, wide open normal saline, two lines. I have heard that the one exception to this practice might be for patients who are in shock with PE. Can you explain to us what the thinking behind this is and whether we should be giving fluid bolses to our patients in shock with PE? Well, for a hemodynamically unstable patient with obstructive shock, secondary to a large obstructing PE, the initial management still begins with fluid resuscitation, but we do know that too much fluids can be detrimental, and so we have to be judicious with the amount of volume delivered. Now, there are no clear guidelines that exist for this, but plasma volume expansion has a negative effect on RV performance. When the RV afterload rises, the RV function worsens with an additional volume because of the pericardial constraint that occurs. This can result in decreased RV coronary perfusion, acute RV failure, and so the downhill cycle of RV can progress in infarction and circulatory arrest. So the bottom line is though, when somebody is hemodynamically unstable, you're gonna give some degree of bolus of fluids, but clearly you don't wanna be giving these people five to 10 liters of fluid as we would typically want to in every other cause of shock. And I've heard many times now that if you put a bedside echo and find big RV dilated, big RA dilated, that that will give you a second reminder not to fluid overload them. Do much or nothing to make a man ill at ease. And for this month's quote of the month, we've got one from Frank Herbert, who was a well-known American science fiction writer who wrote Dune, who died of a massive pulmonary embolism after surgery. Seek freedom and become captive of your desires. Seek discipline and find your liberty. Well, that almost wraps it up for this month's episode. Next month, we're going to continue talking with Dr. Chopra and Dr. Foote about respiratory emergencies. We're going to cover COPD, pneumonia, pleural effusions, tensopneumothorax, and a lot more. I just got back from the 25th annual Whistler Emergency Medicine Update Conference, and it was absolutely fantastic. There was amazing talks from David McKinnon, Eric Lotofsky, Anil Chopra, Joel Yaffe, Paul Hannum, Shirley Lee, and David Carr, all who have been expert guests on emergency medicine cases. What I'm going to try and do and release over the next couple months is the highlights from this conference. So I'm going to pick out a few great little bits from the lectures and give a little bit of commentary and post them on the Emergency Medicine Cases website. So until next time... Take it easy.